You ready? Yep. Awesome. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's show. Is the recent announcement by Pfizer regarding the vaccine going to kill the corona and the 40-year bond market? No. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. No, 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 no. <laughs> Hello, everyone. No, it's too loud. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. Recently, Pfizer said to jump off a bridge. Hello, everyone. How are you? How are you? I don't care. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's show. No, you don't care. Did, yes, no, yes. Hello, what, 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 what? Pfizer recently announced that they have developed a vaccine that may kill off the corona, but will it also kill off the 40-year bull market in bonds? We're going to ask that question of Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Investments. My name is Emil Kalinowski. This is Making Sense, a Eurodollar University production. Jeff, good news from the medical community, but what do we see in the bond market? Yeah, it's absolutely good news, but you know, I don't think it's unexpected news. I think, you know, with so many pharmaceutical firms across the world working on a vaccine, I mean, major problems are major profit opportunities, and that's what capitalism does best. It solves big issues, and I think that was gonna that was gonna happen regardless. Now the question is whether or not it changes anything, and that's where we get into, you know, is the bond mobile bull market dead? which, by the way, I hate the fact that people call it a bull market because it's not bullish for anything except for, you know, negative things. It's, it's bullish when bond yields go down and bond prices go up. That's bad. It's bad for pretty much everyone. And it, it incentivizes all the wrong types of behaviors that are contra or contrary to what we need to happen in a real economy. So, you know, I would, I would be happy if it just killed off talk of a, of a bull market and bonds, but whether it actually changes anything and the bond market is a completely separate issue. I remember you first brought that up with Eric Townsend on Macro Voices maybe a year ago when you were talking about the dollar bull market. And you said it's a bull market represents something positive, something good. It's not good that the dollar is gaining strength against all the currencies. It's not good that the U.S. Treasury market and other sovereign bond markets are gaining because that means people want to put their money in there instead of the real economy. But hallelujah, glory, amen, the bond route is on. Jeff, have you seen what has happened to U.S. Treasury yields and which yields? It's the yields at the long end because the short end is pretty much pegged down to zero. Even the two-year has risen a little bit, but not all that much. It really starts about the three or four-year and goes out for, for, uh, from there down the curve. And so what we've seen is that, you know, the ten, benchmark 10-year treasury, for example, nearly hit 1% uh, a couple days ago before the uh, Veterans Day holiday based on, again, what we saw was that, you know, yields would spike as each, you know, news item was released to the public. And so it was one of those cases where it's a very clear, uh, very clear evidence of especially shorts in the market, selling each and every news. And it wasn't just vaccine related. The vaccine on Monday and then uh, I think it was uh, on Tuesday when there was news from the government that uh, they expected the vaccine to be approved next week, next month, or very soon. So, I mean, uh, every time there was a little bit of news, you would see, you know, minor treasury rally, completely reverse and yields would spike. And it went back before that. I mean, last Friday with the payroll report and the unemployment rate, which we're going to talk about in our next segment, I believe, the unemployment rate fell, even though the rest of the, the labor market data was actually pretty pretty downright na na nasty. Um, the, uh, the, the, the unemployment rate fell, and again, bond yields spiked on the news. And uh, before that, on Tuesday, uh, last Tuesday, the election day, when it was, you know, all, most of the media was filled with stories about this blue wave and Biden winning easily, again, bond yields spiked on the news. But yet, it's only nominal bond yields that we see spiking. And what's, what's happened is that, you know, yes, uh, yields are the highest they've been since March, but does that mean anything? And for a lot of people, they, they try to intuit some kind of meaning into round numbers, for example. The 10-year gets above 1%. That's, that's supposed to be some meaningful shift that indicates a substantial change in positioning in the marketplace. Or you'll often see, hey, a trend line is broken, this or that. So the fact that yields are rising and rising to where they have, is that a substantial, meaningful 
change in condition. And that's what we're really supposed to be asking ourselves. And did the vaccine do that? Is, does that change where the underlying fundamentals for the economy are, which would then corroborate or, or justify this, this move up in yield? I remember that you would talk about the longest expansion in history, the, the best numbers in 10 years in other contexts, in your other articles. And then you would bring up the point, yeah, but the last 10 years have been awful. So is it really impressive that it's the best number in 10 years? So bond yields are in the United States, nominal yields, the best since March. Okay. The best since the depression really got going again. But you make it a point, you've made a, made a, a point in this video several times and in the article, the one we're talking about is called Vaccine For You and you posted it on November 10th at Alhambra Investments. You made a point, you're referring to nominal yields, which are the yields that include inflation. What about the ones that are just adjusted for inflation, the real yield? Yeah, it's amazing. Well, it's, I think it's very interesting and noteworthy that the rest of the treasury market and other related markets like interest rate swaps too, there wasn't that much of a move. In fact, it was just nominal yields. You look at inflation expectations, they jumped up a little bit, but that, you know, as the oil, oil prices did as well. But outside of tips and then swaps, you know, we look at those and it really didn't change all that much. And so there was no highest in whatever. There was basically just okay, this happened. And so most of the action was focused on the nominal treasury market, which again, points our attention towards that heavy short position from speculative or leverage money speculators, which says, you know, they're using every bit of news to just sell more and sell more and sell more, but the rest of the market isn't going along with it. The rest of the market is saying, yeah, this vaccine's probably good. I mean, it's in, a, in terms of human interest, it's obviously very good development. But, you know, by the time that thing gets ramped up, it'll be 2022, maybe 20, end of 2021 at the latest. And we have, you know, does that change anything for where things stand right now or even in the intermediate term early next year? And that's really, I think, the question that the markets are starting to are, are actually trading on is the fact that, yeah, the vaccine's good long run. But what about the short and intermediate run? What do, they, what do those look like? And what does the vaccine do to those time periods? And the answer is, I don't think it does all that much. I think we, we're, we're kind of stuck with where we are and things are going to play out regardless. And yeah, I mean, long run, that's great. We'll have the maybe a solution to the coronavirus, but that's not our biggest problem right now. All right. So we've experienced the rebound from the lockdown. And now maybe we're kicking off a reflation. And how would we know if one is in progress? Well, we would look to money and collateral markets. You mentioned some of them. You said, look to the U.S. Treasury 10-year nominal yield and the inflation-protected one, inflation expectations, swaps. There are also other sovereign bond markets that we can look to. You often mention the German Bund market, the 10-year. And uh, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in Germany and in Europe and those other, other sovereign markets. And... Uh, if it's being corroborated by the reflationary-like rise in U.S. Treasury yields. There was a rise in German yields as well, uh, in tandem with the Treasury yields, which you would expect because those two markets trade closely. But German yields over the last few months are down pretty substantially from where they were in late August as, co as compared to, and I think we talked about this before, compared to U.S. Treasury yields, which have been rising um, since August. So on the one hand, yeah, the, there was some selling in the German market, uh, German bond market uh, on the, the announcement of the vaccine, but yet it wasn't really substantial. It really didn't change all that much either. So it's another indication that, yeah, people are selling on the news, but then what? You know, does it really mean anything different? And so far with the yields in Germany backing down again, coming back down again since the, the vaccine announcement, it's sort of like, okay, it was a short-term blip. Um, some traders may try to make some money in trades on it. And then it's, you know, it's now what? Now what's, ha what's going to happen again? And I think a lot of markets are discounting, especially the short run and intermediate term potential for what the, what the vaccine might do for the real, real economic fundamentals that we're experiencing right now and over the next couple of months and into next year. You know, the Germans are pictured as staid people, calm measured. 
And yet in at least two circumstances that we talk about often, they are on the extremes. And the first, which you just mentioned, is that German government bond yields were way lower, way ahead of U.S. treasuries. And in the other circumstance was the optimism exhibited by German financiers for the last, well, before the last couple of months. And I bring this up because the ZEW, the Zoo survey, which is of German financiers, came out this week. And was it surprising? Were you surprised by the results? No, because uh, I, I was surprised. I was somewhat surprised at how high it had gotten mm-hmm. up until July. I mean, the ZEW, which had been one of the best indicators of the German downturn showing up early in 2018. So on the downside, the ZEW had been really good about saying, hey, things are going wrong here, not going right, especially in that crucial year of 2018 when the global economy was supposed to be taking off. And instead, it was going the opposite way. And, you know, again, that, I think that's relevant also to the bond market because, look, the fundamentals of the economy, the market's not the economy, the economy's not the markets, but over time, those two things should move together. And what we saw back in 2018, especially in the treasury market, was, as you pointed out before, you know, the highest yields in years. And that was supposed to mean something. You know, everybody kept saying, you know, we've broken these 30-year trend lines. So the bond bull market 2018, the bond bull market's dead. Again, those things were true. We've broken trend lines. The U.S. 10-year Treasury got above, you know, three and a quarter percent, got around three and a quarter percent, which was the highest in many years. It was higher than the peak in 2013. So that was, these were supposed, at least we were told, these were meaningful changes. But, you know, when you looked at things like the ZEW and some other, you know, the rest of the bond market, the flat curves and things like that, what you saw was that they weren't meaningful. Yes, nominal yields were rising, but that was basically more like a market fluctuation rather than a, a categorical change in the underlying market position. So going back to the ZEW, what we've observed over the last couple of years is that the European economy tends to be a leading economy in exactly the wrong way. When Europe starts to sink, we always think globally synchronized. If one of the parts of the, of the global economy, one of the major parts of the global economy starts to go down, then we think, okay, over time, it's going to be synchronized in the downturn direction. So the ZEW over the last couple of months, uh, and it really bought into, you know, ECB stimulus, the rebound euphoria, survivor's euphoria, whatever you want to call it. And so it jumped up to the highest it had been in 20 years. It had never, it had the sentiment indicator had ne- hadn't been this high since the year 2000. And we're thinking, okay, maybe that's a good thing. But as we've seen in a lot, a lot, a lot of data around the world since June and July, Things have slowed down and retrenched, maybe even begun to roll over. And that included the ZEW sentiment survey, which went from a 20-year high, and now it's plunged by something like 40-some points in two months, which is kind of what you – that kind of a a radical shift downward is what you associate with a recession. So we're back to nominee yields kind of maybe fluctuating in in the U.S. market on on the high side, but yet fundamentally in a lot of places, even where – even those fund, those indications that had been very optimistic before are all turning negative. What the big picture we're trying to tell people is that we, no, why is it that I can't just gra- jump back on like Tom Brady? Tom Brady can go right back out there. I'm like Tom Brady. You didn't last Sunday. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun to watch, by the way. <laughs> Let me let us then move on to what should we move on to, Jeff? Let's talk about well, artificial construction. What? Go ahead. What were we going to say? Yeah, I think Emil, what we're really talking about here is that you know we want to assign meaning to these arbitrary numbers, levels, trends. We draw lines on charts and say these are meaningful. And there was all sorts of lines and numbers and you know artificial constructions that people create and interpret them as something significant especially in 2018 when yields were rising back then because because that's what people do. People want to believe this is happening and they think, okay, this is happening. Therefore, it crossed this line that I've made. And this line to me is very meaningful. So I'm going to say this means something. And that's really, we got to be careful about doing some things like that because you know we've seen it in the Japanese government bond market for years, for example. I mean, in, two th- in the middle 2000s, Japanese government bond yields rose to the highest they had been since the 90s. 
And everybody said, oh, the Japanese JGB bond bull was over with. That's done. It's, it's ha you know, inflation is happening. The Bank of Japan has been successful. Yeah, QE was done in 2001, but it took six years and finally it's worked. You know, and there's all sorts of rationalizations that go into these kinds of arbitrary associations. And yet what you found is, of course, that wasn't true at all because the underlying fundamentals didn't change. They hadn't changed. We were just interpreting our own signal. We were looking for confirmation bias. And I say we, I mean, I mean that in the broadest sense. People were looking for confirmation bias, and of course they found it. And so that's why when we look at the nominal, rising nominal treasury yields today and say, okay, the 10 years is going to break above 1% perhaps. It hasn't yet, but maybe it will. You know, the 30-year bond is up to 170-something, and that's that's the highest since, you know, March. And so that maybe that means something. And, the, and what we want to do is say, okay, if it does mean something, we should be able to see that in other places. We need to be corroborative across a broad survey of not just market indications but economic data. No one thing. You can't ever depend upon one thing. It's got to be a lot of different things that all tell you a coherent uh, – a, a sense a rational picture my favorite example of this concept that you just gave us is in 2011 when the u.s dollar fell below the lows prior to the 2008-2009 crisis signaling reflation but of course no that that wasn't what was happening it was because the uh there was their surrounding context showed that we were still in trouble and one of the things that we might be able to turn to to see if things are improving is the inflation measure, consumer price inflation. Last thing for this segment, Jeff, that just came out this week. Do we see corroboration of rising nominal yields in consumer price inflation in the United States? No, actually, we see corroboration of the opposite. We see nothing but disinflationary pressures. That also time up to exactly what we're seeing across a lot of the, especially labor market data, which is what we would expect, in that, um, you know, since the summertime, things have been slowing down. And it's not because of the coronavirus or case counts or whatever. These are economic effects that are showing that the economy is in probably much worse shape than people anticipate. Certainly much worse shape than the idea you're given from something like GDP, which you know rose at a gigantic rate, or some, even some of these payroll reports, which we're going to get into in the next segment, that show these gigantic numbers. Yeah, they're, they're gigantic numbers, but they're only gigantic because we're already in such a big hole. And so what we're really talking about is, you know, not the recession, for, you know, the recessions that happened, we're already in it. It's how are we getting out of it? Or are we getting out of it? Are we getting out of it fast enough that it's going to keep uh, things moving forward? Or are we getting out of it too slowly that it risks other bad things happening? And that's what we see in Europe. We see Europe is, again, looking at Europe as a leading kind of indicator for the global synchronized economy or eventually synchronized economy. Europe is retrenching again. A lot of that does have to do with the rising coronavirus case counts and the government response to it. But as in the United States and China and elsewhere around the world, we've had a since summer, since summer slowdown. And that's what we see in inflation. And inflation, you know, again, if Jay Powell had flooded the world with digital money printing, as he claimed on 60 Minutes back in May, you know, May was six months ago. Why aren't we seeing it anywhere? We don't see it in the bond market, as we just discussed. The tips market is relatively subdued. Inflation expectations are still among the lowest in the entire series. And we see it in the, in the C, we don't see Jay's flood in the CPI. CPI numbers fell back again last month, not just because of oil prices, especially core rates have decelerated too. And in fact, uh, the seasonally adjusted core CPI was practically flat in October, which is one of those indications, you know, CPIs, inflation measures, people have lots of problems with them and they have legitimate problem, legitimate concerns. But yet on the downside, these, these, Lack of inflation does corroborate or does correlate very closely with some of the worst economic circumstances. And so from inflation indications, yes, bond yields have risen. Bond shorts are, are betting news, but all across the data, across the, uh, across all lots of different markets, including copper and some of the other places, what we're seeing is that summer slowdown, summer slowdown. It's what, what keeps getting repeated all over the place. So in the context of this week, does the vaccine change where we are now? And it might, you know, 2022 might look a lot better, but what happens 
what happens between now and then? You said it, Jeff. The labor market is where we're going to turn to next in part two of episode 35. What does the labor and employment market in America tell us about the direction of the world's largest economy? Jeff Snyder, head of global research for Alhambra Investments, you're going to be able to tell us this article that you wrote. It was on the 6th of November, and it was called Good Payrolls Still Say Slowdown. It was a good payroll number, Jeff. And what are we talking about? We're talking about data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, and it released what is officially known as the current employment statistics, though our audience will know it because it's more popularly, popularly referred to as the establishment survey and the payroll report. Jeff, what was the tale of the tape? It, as, you, as you pointed out, Emil, it was a very good payroll report. And, um, you know, the headline numbers were relatively okay. It was more for the current population survey, the CPS rather than the CES, where much of the fuss was contained. And the popular CPS is the household survey rather than the establishment survey. And those were the eye-popping numbers. And the thing to, to be to to to, uh, to understand is that you know good payroll, good monthly payroll numbers are almost a constant feature. They happen in the worst of circumstances too. And as we stated in the last segment, you know some of these good payroll numbers are masking the underlying problems because it's related more to the non-economic components of the rebound, reopening economy, and not necessarily the lack or the economic damage that's associated with what's happened because of the recession since March. So yeah, we last uh, the, the, the payroll report for the month of October was a very good one. And it was a very good one almost across the board. Okay, great. So that's good news. But you said even more positivity was in the household survey, which is done by the U.S. Census Bureau on behalf of the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And that is where we get our data to be able to calculate the unemployment rate and also the labor force participation rate. Is that right, Jeff? And what did we learn from that other report? Yeah, the unemployment rate actually does come from the CPS or the household survey. So it's the establishment survey, I think, in terms of payrolls, what most people pay attention to. And I think maybe they, they wrongly associate that with the unemployment rate when the two things are not really related. Now, the unemployment rate dropped pretty sharply because the household survey showed a couple million in uh, new employees being telling the Census Bureau that they're being employed. But at the same time, we didn't see a really large rise in the number of overall labor force. We saw a rebound in it from the big drop in September. But the labor force going back to June has been essentially flat. So what that tells us is that we're kind of back into a situation like we had been in for the previous five or six years, where the unemployment rate has shown, has suggested one thing about a very much improving, maybe even inflationary economy, when the labor force participation rate, the lack of growth in the labor force said, no, there's there's really still the same macroeconomic slack underlying in the real economy that's that's keeping everything in check. So we're once again back to the stupid situation where the unemployment rate is doing something that the underlying labor fundamentals may not be may not be corroborating. We would expect that the labor force, especially after shrinking so much, uh, going back to March and April, would be coming back not just all the way, but going back to where it would have been had there been no March and April. And instead, it's kind of flatlined at a very low number, which is an indication of American workers saying, we're not even looking for work anymore. So I don't know if you find this to be the case, Jeff, but whenever I'm reading newspaper stories, the headline seems to say one thing, but it's always the, the penultimate paragraph that has the, the real story, the ultimate details. And so that's what it seems like with this situation here. Yeah, the unemployment rate is down. Great. Why? The labor force participation. I'm going to pull up two graphs from this article. Good payrolls still say slow down November 6th. I'm going to pull them up. If you can just talk us through them, it really shows what you're describing. The two lines, how one's accelerating, but the other one is accelerating less, and it makes all the difference. Yeah, I think also we want to concentrate on the private economy too, because that's really what we're talking. I mean, that's really the issue here is the, 
the private payrolls. And there's a couple different uh, a couple different ways to measure that. Obviously, the the CES, the Establishment Survey, has its own estimate for total private payrolls. And there's also an ADP estimate that we've talked about before for private payrolls. And when we look at the labor market from those two very, very different surveys, very different data, they show basically the same thing as what we've been talking about all along is that going back to early summer, something changed. You had the initial rebound, which is really big. It was really sharp and really good. And then it, it, you know, it, it just kind of died out. It petered out. It isn't, it has, it isn't turned over. We're not, we're not talking about re-recession or, you know, payrolls collapsing back on themselves, but it's not growing at the same rate that is that it had before, obviously, but also it's not growing at near enough of, of a rate to indicate what we want to see, which is a sufficient enough rebound that we can start talking about reflation and recovery. And those, we look at the yeah, those two, the establishment survey and the ADP survey, they were on a V-shaped trajectory until June, July, but the unemployment rate for people that are not joining us on, on YouTube is still on that V-shaped recovery. And so you're thinking, wait a minute, what's the disconnect? Yeah, there's almost no interruption in the unemployment rate, which, which presents an, a very different picture. And the reason why, as you're showing here in the next chart, is because the labor force has essentially flatlined. So, you know, again, the unemployment rate is the odd one out. It's the one saying one thing as it had from 2014 all the way through 2019, suggesting that the labor, the labor market and the economy is doing really, really well when it never really did. Uh, whereas everything else in the labor market, especially in 2020, is saying, look, something happened June and July. Something changed. You know, it isn't re-recession, but it's the rebound stopped rebounding. It didn't, it is not, do, the economy is not behaving the same ways it had during that initial reopening Russian euphoria. Something is holding it back. And it's not, we see it in a wide, I and mean, we just talked about inflation. We just talked about the bond markets and everything else. Something changed. It's a global slowdown that showed up during summer when that was supposed to be the time when everything was supposed to continue taking off. And this brings us to the Federal Reserve and something called Furbis. Jeff, what is Furbis? Is it something that you cut up and put in your jambalaya to make it a little bit fresher? Is it something you find between your toes? Is it a small creature that you don't want to get wet or uh, don't let it eat after midnight? Is it any of those things, Furbus? Furbus refers to the Federal Reserve's main DSGE econometric model, Federal Reserve Board US, Furbus. And so Furbus is what the Fed uses, and they, they have other models too, but Furbus is the main model, where how they, how they project what the economy is going to, how it's going to perform based on whatever inputs, whether they be exogenous inputs like a shock or in, endogenous inputs like monetary policy or fiscal spending or whatever. So Furbus tells the Federal Reserve, <laughs> it tells them all the wrong things. But for in their minds, it tells them what the future is going to look like. Uh, and the, because it's a bad, it's, it's bad models and bad statistics and oversimplifications, they never seem to get it right. And the point that you bring up in this next article that we're now on, slow down in the rebound, Stop Listening to Central Bankers, posted on November 6th, is that Furbus suggests that once you reach full employment, which is measured by the unemployment rate, which we've just been discussing and raising our eyebrows at, once you reach that, you're going to have inflation, you're going to have economic acceleration, you're going to have money printing, and the Fed needs to step in to slow it down. And that's what we saw, I believe, in 2015, Walk us through what Janet Yellen was believing at that time. Yeah, they were using the unemployment rate. Despite all this other information telling them that they were wrong and that the unemployment rate was wrong, uh, Janet Yellen's Fed in particular used the unemployment rate as well as you know the jolt survey job opening. So a couple of the outliers that were saying the, the economy was getting close to its maximum employment level. Therefore, that was going to be inflationary. And in the way the, Fed, the, the current Federal Reserve and Central Bank model is constructed, that meant that you have to start breaking the economy before inflation becomes overheated. And so that's why in December of 2015, they began raising the federal funds rates, uh, the Reserve Repo Floor and IOER, because they were convinced that the unemployment rate was the true picture of the underlying economy. Even though in 2015 in particular, they had expected to begin raising rates early, much earlier in the year, but had to keep pulling it off because 
the economy was, was sure not acting like it was in a position to take off and recover. So they overlooked these contrary signals, of course, completely ignoring bonds, completely ignoring the rising dollar, rationalizing both of those things, and, and latching on to the unemployment rate, which was falling quickly, if only because of the participation problem. And so one after another after another of these rationalizations, they kept doing the wrong things. Urbis has been in use since 1996. Jeff, do you know if the full employment assumption had been constant from 1996 through 2014? And I'm referring to the long run full employment lower bound of 5%. And I ask you that because I want to con contrast that assumption with what happened after 2014 to that assumption. Now, the, the, the long-run full employment, which is a Phillips curve kind of a, of a concept, it's not supposed to be stationary. It's not supposed to move all the way around. It's not supposed to be go from zero to 20 or something like that. But it does move around just like, the, the, like they assume our star or the natural interest rate moves around a little bit too. So there are there's, you know, some variation in full employment. By and large, it should be somewhat predictable. It should be a point of, you know, because – past history and whatever else, we should be able to say, this is about the range where the economy has looked like it's in terms of a recession and business cycle. It has completely recovered. It's back to maximum. It's operating at its capacity or its trend line potential. And therefore, we need to adjust our thinking based on that. And would you say that 12 adjustments to that assumption between 2015 and 2019 signals normal variance in the economy and the feedback and the model, or is it saying, we don't know? I think it's like, we don't know. It's, I think it's actually delusional, right? If you have to, you know, in the context of 2014 forward, the unemployment rate kept dropping to the point where it was dropped below their modeled assumptions for where full employment would be. And so if the unemployment rate is substantially below the level you think that maximum employment is, then we should be seeing inflation. The fact that it didn't ever break out, we didn't ever see really wages rise that quickly either, which is the predicate condition for this inflationary, broad inflationary uh, wave that was supposed to come up. Instead, if the unemployment rate kept falling below what you thought was maximum employment, you should say, maybe the unemployment rate's wrong. Something, right? You don't just rewrite your, your idea of where maximum employment is. But, but, but over time, as inflation, as wages failed to accelerate, as inflation failed to materialize, the Fed kept following essentially the unemployment rate lower and lower and lower. And it isn't like they didn't have alternate explanations or alternate theories. The bond market, again, told you money was tight. The participation problem was completely and thoroughly ignored. It was rationalized as drug, drug addicted Americans or Americans who are too lazy to go back to school. I mean, all sorts of really bad stuff to avoid pointing the picture, pointing the finger back at themselves. And so the time and time again, they kept reducing their idea of full employment because they, we were nowhere near full employment. And that's really what this is about. The unemployment rate was ultimately misleading in that it projected economic circumstances that didn't ha they weren't real, that didn't happen. We were not recovered. The economy hasn't recovered since 2008. And what central bankers were essentially doing was essentially saying, Look, we love the employment rate because it gets us off the hook. And so we're going to do everything we can to, to push the unemployment rate view. We're going to lower our estimates for full employment to try to explain why there is no inflation and wage growth just because the alternative is, hey, this, this economy hasn't recovered since 2008. And 2008 was, was, was an event that's in our backyard. Right, exactly, as you're saying. So... The unemployment rate back then suggested that we would be experiencing a paint-peeling, searing 1970s inflation. It didn't happen. And good news, Jeff, after 10 years or 13 years in August of this year, August 2020, the Federal Reserve said, we're just going to move this full employment model thing over here to the side, and we're just not going to really define what full employment is. We'll look at other measures to determine if the economy is doing well. And maybe one of those measures is jolts, which came out, I believe, this week. Does jolts suggest the labor market is in good shape 
and like the unemployment rate or that it suggests it's not in good shape like the labor force participation rate? Well, what's interesting about JOLTS is up until 2018, 2019, it had been one of the few indications that seemed to corroborate the labor market. Remember what JOLTS, the job openings is. Job openings is a kind of a, a, a sort of a backdoor ad hoc measure for labor demand, which is a, an essential component in the underlying fundamentals of the economy. So job openings and labor demand, if they're rising at a sharp rate as the unemployment rate is falling at, a, at an equally sharp rate, those are really good signs. And so those are things you might want to pay attention to, except that those were outliers. Though, I guess, as we were just saying, you know, if labor demand is such, and again, that this, the, the, especially the jolts job openings measure led a lot of economists and central bankers to talk about a labor shortage. Labor demand was so high that, you know, the, because the hiring rate and the, the uh, actual employment numbers weren't keeping up with labor demand. They rationalize that as, oh, there must be a labor. The economy's so good, there's a labor shortage. But again, if you're claiming labor shortage, if you're claiming job openings, you're claiming the unemployment rate, these are the real act, adequate and accurate pictures of the economy. They should be corroborated by, in a very broad sense, by a whole lot of other things, starting with the dollar and the bond market. And the fact that they weren't was already always an indication that we're missing something here and including, you know, whether it's jolts, whether it's the unemployment rate, it's not giving you an accurate picture. So if job openings was up until 2018, a good thing, it was one of the few things on the good side, you have to look at it since 2018 as, oh boy, it's now on the bad side. So you, now the unemployment rate that's improving this year doesn't even have job openings on its side anymore. And who do we turn to to kind of boost our enthusiasm and invest in the economy and get our expectations up. We look to the Fed because that's how they manage money these days is via expectations policy. And in this now third article under our broad heading of unemployment and the labor situation in the United States, and you call it QE didn't jolt again, and this one's posted on November 10th, you bring up that we're not seeing that enthusiasm from our leaders at the Federal Reserve. I'm going to read a quote here. All of This is from Jerome Powell. All of us lived through the experience of the years after the global financial crisis. And for a number of years, there in the middle of the recovery, fiscal policy was pretty tight. I think we'll have a stronger recovery if we can just get at least some more fiscal support. That doesn't sound very peppy. No, and it doesn't sound like Ben Bernanke used to talk about QE, does it? Maybe you go back to the earliest days of QE and... and QE was the most powerful, awesome force ever unleashed in the universe, more powerful than a black hole. That's the way it was talked about. Now, central bankers were careful. They didn't talk that way, but they let, they let that impression stand and they let the financial media run with that impression. And oh, how times have changed, haven't they? Now they're rewriting, rewriting history. You talked about before, they no longer even believe the unemployment rate. They've said, hey, the unemployment rate fooled us. They've outright stated that. You know, it's in literature. It's buried in speeches. They haven't come out in a press conference and major headlines that say the unemployment rate have it fooled us the entire time. But it's there. It's in the background. The Fed has admitted the unemployment rate fooled everyone. So now it's, hey, the, the economy under QE was awesome. Look at the unemployment rate. Now it's the unemployment rate fooled us. And, you know, the government should have spent more damn austerity. And here's an, and this is coming from their meeting the other week, which you note in the article is you're happy to see that there's some progress that nobody even noticed that there was a meeting. And hopefully this will continue. We'll forget that they're actually meeting, that they're not that important. Here's another quote from Powell. Quote, we're halfway there on the labor market recovery at best. Yeah, and that's exactly what we've been showing you in the statistics. There was an initial rebound that was good. It was a rush of millions of people who have been prevent millions of workers who were prevented from working by non-economic government shutdowns that when those shutdowns were removed and the economy was reopened, they went back in the labor market. So we got, in Powell's words, halfway. I don't think it's even close to halfway, but we got some, we got part, part of the way back in that reopening rush. And if Jay had been done, had done anything like his job or what he thinks his job is, that should have continued on through the summer when it didn't. 
after the first couple months of reopening, that re that re Russian frenzy of you know euphoria, whatever you want to call it, getting people back into the workforce, it was only part of the workforce that had been left that had been laid off and put out of work. And since then, it's been a very different situation, which is what Jay Powell has essentially admitted at his press conference at the FOMC meeting was that look. There actually was a reopening rebound, but it hasn't rebounded all that much since, which in terms of QE and inflation, all these other things really doesn't reflect very well on QE and all those other things, because that was QE's really, that's really the job. It was supposed to be, I mean, Federal Reserve is supposed to make employers happy enough that they start taking risks and hiring workers again because they think the future is going to be so much better, so much more inflationary. They better hire workers today because those workers are going to be so damn expensive next year, they're going to regret it if they don't. And what we're seeing is time and time again, employers are like, eh, QE, that's, that's all nonsense. We've talked about Germany. We've talked about the United States. Let's talk about another very important large economy. That's what we're going to turn to in part three. What does the latest trade and inflation data out of China tell us about the direction of the world's second largest economy? And does that data corroborate the perhaps radical outlines that we're seeing in their 14th five-year plan? Jeff, today you posted an essay at Real Clear Markets, and the title of it is Xi Jinping is Mao, only for his focus to be on technology. Um, Jeff, the Communist Party of China seems to have come to an agreement on the outlines of their 14th five-year plan, and you start off your article by taking us back to the very first Chinese five-year plan. Can you Tell us a little bit about it. I could tell you quite a lot about it. But it's, it's, uh, look, the, the communists took over in 1949, and after consolidating political power across mainland China, at least, in the early 1950s, they began to, to, uh, to assert their Marxist theories on the uh, overall Chinese economy, which at the time was you know, a very feudal, backwards, uh, agrarian, subsistence farming uh, system. and so. They actually imported thousands of engineers from the Soviet Union and essentially, essentially copied the Russians' first five-year plan from 1928 and adopted it to a Chinese format, basically almost word for word, you know, trans direct translation from Russian into Mandarin. And so the first five-year plan was, you know, we got to focus on China's ability to make things, because if you don't make things, you're always going to be borrowing stuff from the imperialist dogs and the imperialist pigs, and you'll never have a socialist paradise. And so the focus of the first five-year plan, as the first Russian five-year plan, was heavy industry. You got to make, got to be able to make steel, and if you got to be able to make steel, you got to have fuel. So you got to have coal. You have to have all sorts of infrastructure that transports, you know, coal from the ground to the steel factories, and you got to have workers. But, you know, communists always like to manage these things from the top down. So there was a bureaucratic system that was also growing up with the adoption of this first five-year plan, which focused on industry. And as far as these things go, Jeff, I would say that the first five-year plan was a success. And that gave them impetus and momentum into the second five-year plan, which was kicked off in 1958. And this one organized farmers into industrial workers, reducing the number of hands tilling the fields. And that's all well and good if you can still produce the same amount of food or necessary amount of food to feed the people that are now in the factories. Tell us a little bit about the second five-year plan. Well, before let's you know let's let's uh, specify the first five-year plan was successful in that it met and exceeded almost every single one of its targets, and that was that gave the uh, Maoist Mao and the communist authorities in China the quote-unquote proof they needed that they were on the right track. And what China had that Russia didn't was an overwhelming amount of untapped labor. Obviously, the Chinese population was far exceeding, even though Russia, the Russian population wasn't small, uh, the Chinese population far exceeded it. So Mao said, look, we've got all of these 
these people and on these, you know, dirt farms, farming rice at, at very inefficient means, we can use them to help us speed up our industrial processes. So unlike the Russians who had trouble in their first five-year plan and the agricultural production plummeted because so many workers were, were, pushed, were pushed into industry, in China during their first five-year plan, they didn't have that problem. So they met their industrial targets. Agricultural production didn't fall off. So they thought for the second five-year plan starting in 1958, they would push more and more of their agricultural potential, let's say, into not just not just industry though, but the most the worst kind of just inefficient, the most inefficient means. Rather than building factories for all this work, all this workforce to move and and and, and build high quality steel or, or produce high quality steel or high quality products, Mao's second year five plan five year plan just said, we'll just have this quote unquote idle labor that's that's working the fields as they are now making steel in in their own backyards in their own uh, collectivized communes and so it was it was really one of those uh hubristic ambitious overly uh suggestive ideas that just got way out of control and the understatement of the year is way out of control because that was the great leap forward and as you write it's one of humanity's greatest catastrophes uh I've got some stats according to the numbers you cite between 15 and 60 million people starved. Wikipedia puts it between 23 and 55. One of the authors, authors that puts the number at 45 million dead said it wasn't all from starvation. He notes that at least two and a half million people were beaten or tortured to death and one million to three million committed suicide. It was a catastrophe that sort of echoed what we saw in the Soviet Union with their agricultural, the famine that developed there. Yeah, and it's 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 also look when you're stuck on a when when your farm you were a private you know subsistence farmer beforehand. When the government, the communist government, comes in and collectivized, that wasn't just them taking away your land and making you share the land with all your neighbors and all, all the surrounding communities. It meant that you're stuck there; you cannot leave. And if you do leave, they're going to catch you because there's something called a Hukou registration system, which says you're supposed to be here, not here. And if you're not here, instead of where you're supposed to be, you are subjected not just to a, a, you know deportation back to your rural dirt farm commune. It was also you're going to be heaped with public humiliation and, and rebuke, official rebuke in the form of torture or prison, whatever, just for trying to, to leave your commune that didn't have enough food. And the reason it didn't have enough food was because the central planners had created essentially a Potemkin system, a system whereby they were they, they set these targets, they met them in the first five-year plan, and because they expected them to, to, to be met in the second five-year plan, they also meant business. They also meant, look, these are your targets, you're going to meet them. And so local leaders were telling their central party communist leaders that, yeah, we are producing the same amount of food. And they weren't, not by a long shot. And one reason why they weren't was because they also had to produce the same amount of steel that was in the targets. And they couldn't produce the same amount of steel because they weren't real steel makers. These were backyard furnaces spewing out pig iron, which was also useless. So in the second five-year plan, they met all their targets. But in terms of steel making and some of these backyard industrial heavy industry, it was worthless product and phantom agriculture. And yet, from the central planners' perspective, all their targets were being met. And it was, it combined into this absolute human catastrophe of genocide. We're going to skip ahead a few five-year plans to the fifth one, which was I think special. I, I do want to mention, Emil, that, and I put it in the article, that there was a memo that the, C, the U.S. CIA had produced in June 1959 when they were hearing noise. Remember, we didn't really know about what was going on in China at the time because China was a very closed society. And so the CIA, of course, had interest in to figure out what was going on in society. And so they had a pretty lengthy memo uh, produced in, I believe it was June 1959, talking about this leap forward stuff. And let me tell you, you got to just shake it. The CIA, man. Uh, they were very positive on how the Chinese were going to be able to do what the Russians hadn't. 
that the Chinese were going to be able to be successful with their second five-year plan and not suffer the same agricultural setbacks that the Russians had. And it was one of those, one of those you just have to shake your head at these, you know, uh, the idea of establishment analysis and, and things like that. That's right. It uh, said that it would do, the country would do at least as well as the USSR. And I was going to bring it up, but I got a call earlier today not to bring it up. Uh, so we'll see if, if I can get it through the sensors when we upload it to YouTube. The fifth five-year plan, Jeff, we started to turn the corner. Okay. There were a couple of good, there were a couple of notable things. One of them not so wonderful is the one child policy, but then the 1976 to 1980th five-year five year plan, it was special. What happened from there? Well, between the Great Leap Forward and the Great Famine and the catastrophe that was, Deng Chao, or, uh, Mao Zedong was sidelined because even the communists said, you, you have no idea what you're doing here. This is totally screwed up. But that led to a backlash because in the early 1960s, Mao said, well, it wasn't our fault. Blame the Russians. We copied their five-year plans, and obviously the Russian five-year plan isn't going to work in China. So Mao made a comeback in the, in the middle 1960s, which led to the Cultural Revolution, which wasn't as bad in terms of human catastrophe, but it was still a human catastrophe and certainly a political catastrophe as Mao uh, created this iron grip cult of personality over China. And so that lasted into the middle of the 1970s as the Chinese economy essentially stagnated for you know, the entire, entire period there until a guy named Deng Xiaoping started to take over and move the pendulum back in the opposite direction. Now, Deng was no free market you know, capitalist. He was a committed communist, but he at least had enough sense to realize, look, this Maoist stuff was a complete and total disaster. It was a mistake. So moving forward, China will never again have an undisputed dictator, cult of personality like we had in Mao. We're going to rotate. We're not going to vote. We're not going to have you know, a republic. But we're going to at least not have a single leader hold the reins of power for, you know, year after year after year. We'll have, you know, maybe four-year terms, five-year terms of a president or, you know, head of the central committee. And we'll even rotate who's head of the army, who's head of the government. We'll do all these things, sort of a very limited communist checks and balances, because we don't want to go back to the way it was done under Mao. And in addition to that, in the terms of the economy, Deng and his, his followers began to look at the economy as socialists don't create wealth, which is what Karl Marx said. Karl Marx said, look, communism doesn't create wealth. It only redistributes what's, been, what's made. So if, if, the, if the Chinese were going to survive in a communist system, they had to at least look forward and think about, well, how are we going to get out of this mess that we've been left into with Mao? And so the fifth five-year plan was the first that introduced special economic zones, and also some more market, private property, uh, market-oriented reforms that began China on its path towards modern transformation. In 1992, he went on his famous Southern Tour, in which he opened up the economy even further. And if you remember, of course, this was after 1989, then the Tiananmen Square protests. So the situation was tense in China. And further reopening was needed for economic growth. And Jeff, I think yeah, that just... Was, Emil, that was where the pendulum swung all the way into the other direction, the anti-Maoist mm -hmm. direction. Now, obviously, it didn't in political terms, but in economic terms, especially after Tiananmen Square had you know, led to such public uh, uh, global scorn and, and global uh, you know, shunning of China uh, after, the, after what happened there, Deng realized, especially in the wake of the fall of the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, which had happened in 1991, in 1992, he realized, look, this is an all or nothing position. Either we do it this way or it's going to just we're going to we're going to go the way of the Soviet Union. And so the pendulum had swung all the way back in the other direction where China said, look, we're going to continue to be politically autocratic. We're going to be communism. We're going to be top down. But we really have to embrace at least a capitalist phase, because otherwise it, is, it just doesn't work. We need to build up the wealth of the Chinese society because it's, it's, it's reached its limits. And I think it was great fortune that at just that moment, the euro dollar pedal was pushed to the metal. Because if this had happened, let's say 10 years earlier in 1982, 
just when half the world fell into depression during the LDC crisis, when South America went into depression, Africa went into depression. I don't know if, uh, if the economy would have taken off at any, well, maybe because there was, it was at such a subsistence level. There was, you know, low food. I guess it could have grown, but it was great circumstance that the euro dollar, euro dollar tide floated China all the way past 2008, 2009. But until about 2011, 12, things started to inflect. And then the 13th five-year plan, the first one under Xi Jinping said, it's over. The pendulum doesn't swing one way forever. Yeah. And that was the first time that, you know, people talk about rebalancing. That was where it first started to show up in official circles, which was, you know, the government saying, you know, there's a lot, all of a sudden, all the problems that had cropped up during those two decades of quote unquote miracle growth or euro dollar fueled growth in China, you know, pollution, corruption, inequality, all of these things that, that, that were always there. Suddenly they started to matter around 2013 and 2014 as the global economy failed to recover from the, from the great recession. And China didn't continue on its merry way as a lot of people thought a lot of the emerging markets and especially Asia would. And so what Xi was, was saying was, you know, um, the way that we had been doing things since Deng Xiaoping and, and, you know, again, the pendulum swinging toward the free market, we may not be able to do them anymore because we don't see the same levels of economic growth that allows those things to continue to happen. So the 13th five-year plan began to, to, to reorient the Chinese priorities toward a very different model of internal, exclusive, more of an island, less globalized, less part of the global community, less part, less globalization, certainly not counting on globalization, which in raw economic terms means we don't see the export growth anymore. So where the hell are we going to get our growth from? And if anyone knows their Chinese history, it's perfectly natural for China to withdraw from the world. That happens repeatedly. The first time it was brought to my attention that that may happen again, as hard as that would be to believe, was by Anne Stevenson Yang, a well-known Chinese uh, expert. And uh, she brought that up in late 2015, early 2016, to my memory. And Jeff, let me read a quote here from you about the third euro dollar disorder. And that'll segue us into where we are today. We'll talk about some of the the uh, the latest numbers in the 14th five-year plan. But let me, let me go back in time a little bit here. Quote, while in the West, there would be sustained celebrations and hysteria over an inflationary acceleration short on evidence in 2017, in China, there began preparations for the exact opposite of those. She, not Janet Yellen, guessed correctly. Both had an abundance of numbers, the bond market, showing them there really was only one way this could ever end up. We'll yeah, that's the euro dollar that, that period, 2014, 2015, 2016, was a crucial, crucial time period in that in China, not just China, but the rest of the world, it showed that the reflation number three of that small rebound from the, the from the downturn that had happened that in that during that period. First of all, there wasn't supposed to be a downturn. It was supposed to be global recovery. And second of all, it was sharp in emerging markets in Asia, especially China, where government authorities on Xi's side, as opposed to those on Li Keqiang's side, were saying, this seems to be permanent. This is where we're seeing, you know, our inflection happened in 2011, 2012. Now it's 2015, 2016, 2017. And we're just not seeing this global growth stuff. It's, it's become clear to us that what we were what we were planning for, what we we had uh, planned against in the thirteen five year plan, it is actually coming to fruition. In that we need to change how China does economy and everything else that goes from it, because one of the uh, economies just where it starts. I mean, first of all, as we said before, under Deng Xiaoping and Deng Xiaoping thought or Deng Xiaoping theory, we would never have a permanent dictator holding all the reins of power again. That's what they said. China's communists said, we need to share power at least among a small group of people. And since Euro dollar number three, more and more Xi has been consolidating his power. In the 19th Party Congress, he 
you know, he set up the, uh, the, the conditions so that in 2018 at the National Party Congress or the National People's Congress, whatever it's called, that he could not only have power in all three arenas, government, military, police, and all these, uh, all these other things, but that he could hold power permanently, that he could cultivate a cult of personality. And so politically anyway, the Chinese have, the, the pendulum has swung far back in the direction of Mao. And now we're seeing with the 14th five-year plan, which is still being put together, only parts of it has been released to the public, but yet they're, they're, they're going even further than the 13th five-year plan, a lot further in my mind than the 13th five-year plan had gone, which corroborates and, and goes along with what we're seeing in the political arena, which is China basically telling you, we are planning for a future where China goes it alone. We're not counting on global growth anymore because why the hell would we? We haven't seen it in a decade. We're, you know, yes, we keep hearing Western central bankers talking about unemployment rates and all these other positive things, but it doesn't happen. And the Chinese government doesn't have the luxury of fooling itself because they still have that original problem that showed up under the first five-year plan, which is they prioritize only the urban residents that that uh, uh, that Mao had, leaving the rural residents to be essentially second and third class citizens, and without the prospects of that Deng Xiaoping, you know, the island of prosperity in between, the Chinese know they have a huge multi hundred million people problem on their hands. And let's put some numbers to what you're saying right now that there is no more growth. And we don't mean literally no more growth, but but metaphorically, or no, we don't mean it literally, but what is the word I'm looking for, Jeff? Not uh, enough, not nearly enough. Not so, nearly enough, yes. In that sense, it is, it's not, you know, it's not really, if it's not enough growth, if it's, it's, if it's technically growing, but it's not enough growth, it's really not growth. Non-linear growth, okay, yes. Yeah. So, it's always non-linear. So the third euro dollar disorder began in 2014, exports. This year, for the most recent month reported right now, are up 11% year over year. But they're really only up in total 14.7% since 2014. Imports are up 11% since 2014. Just the most recent month, October, imports were up 4.7%. So while October's numbers look good, if you take a longer view, you see really we haven't grown enough. Yeah, and you see that 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 started to change around 2011 and 2012, and then really it became clear in 2014 and 2015 that that the global economy, as it had been for Deng Xiaoping theory to to continue to operate or to continue as the the underlying premise for Chinese economic planning. It just wasn't there anymore. The global globalization, global trade, global economy. And of course, what we're really talking about is the euro dollar. That all broke down in the post-crisis era. And we can, we can time that. We can map it to what we see politically and economically in China. And so look at, we look at the 14th five-year plan in that context, what the Chinese are saying, what they're saying, and not even what they're saying, what they're actually doing is preparing for a future where they don't have economic or global economic growth and globalization they're preparing to try to go it alone because they believe they don't have any other choice and they realize that this is a very risky proposition which is why on the political front the pendulum is swinging for xi in very much the same way as it had for mao it's in that same autocratic authoritarian direction because this is a very very risky proposition that really is the, the point here because why would the communist Chinese undertake such a risky proposition if they had any other choice? You can also see it in the consumer prices. We were just talking about uh, Europe. We were talking about the United States, how we don't see inflation there, signifying we don't see monetary growth or ex economic acceleration. And just this week, we learned that the uh, consumer price data out of China is not any good either. Is that correct, Jeff? What did you learn from from that? Yeah, the CPI was the lowest it had been since I believe uh, November two thousand nine, somewhere in two thousand nine, right. right? Late two thousand nine. So it was the lowest in eleven years, and it was barely positive, down to I think half a percent year over year. 
And that's still being masked a little bit by, by the Chinese pork problem that they've, they had in 2019. You know, a disease outbreak had called the, the, the pig herd in China and led to a massive spike in food inflation that is just now coming off. But as that food inflation starts to come down again, what it's revealing is that the underlying fundamentals outside of food or the underlying inflation fundamentals outside of food in China don't speak much toward a rebound in economic demand in China. Therefore, you know, what, what China can contribute as far as global growth is concerned. There's not enough money creation in the world. We see that in China. We see that in Germany. We see that in the United States. The corona has exacerbated it, but it was a problem that's been in place for at least 13 years. And we can't look to central bankers for a solution. Jeff, I Nor hope can we a... look to, I don't think we can look to Pfizer either, right? I mean, because <laughs> to bring this all back to where we started, does the vaccine really change much about what we're really talking about? It can in terms, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a, it's a very good uh, development in terms of, of, of uh, health and the situation with the virus and the pandemic, but economically speaking, fundamental economics, really doesn't change much and that's that's why i believe you haven't seen much uh much outside of nominal treasury yields that have reacted to it jeff i hope you have a great weekend and i'll talk to you again next week yeah you too i mean i'll take care <laughs>